The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast. Um, so Joe Biden uh, did it a, uh, uh, a few uh, days ago. He, he dropped the F-bomb. He said that uh, uh, the Trump movement was semi-fascist. Uh, um, and that was subsequently followed up by a very tough speech he gave in Philadelphia on the cusp of Labor Day. Uh, where he laid out uh, why he regards what he calls MAGA Republicans as a threat to um, democracy. Uh, and these, these are very tough words for Biden. And I think that they're all the more striking because Joe Biden uh, throughout his whole career has like tried to work with Republicans. Um, as you mentioned in the Philadelphia speech, uh, you know, he continues to try to work with Republicans. Uh, and, uh, but um, uh, something has happened with Biden where he, he's uh, taking a kind of a more strident line uh, um, against not just Trump, but against the movement that um, is, uh, supports him, a movement that he um, believes is now dominating the Republican Party. Uh, now, this has uh, created a predictable backlash uh, from Republicans who are understandably very upset. Uh, but I think more interesting is the kind of um, the sort of backlash against some uh, centrist sorts. Um, the sort of fascist uh, uh, label, there's been a long controversy, you know, going back to Trump's emergence as a political figure as to whether it's fair to call him a fascist or not. And the, I think the most important controversy um, is um, uh, on the left uh, and uh, among liberals as well and centrists, people who don't support Trump, but some of whom think the fascist label is applicable and others who um, don't. And I think the same applies to the uh, Philadelphia speech, that there is a kind of a very interesting debate uh, of people outside the Republican Party as to whether, you know, this sort of strong language is uh, uh, truth telling and to the point and others who think that it's inflammatory, counterproductive uh, and inaccurate. Um, so to discuss all this, I'm very happy to have uh, my friend Matt Ford, um, who's a staff writer at the New Republic and who wrote on the whole sort of um, fascist um, uh, debate uh, in a very uh, smart and pertinent way. Um, uh, so uh, welcome, Matt. And I guess maybe to sort of start, um, I, I think one point that you made, which I think is very key to all of us, is that it's very interesting that it's Biden who used the phrase semi-fascist and that it's um, uh, given who Biden is and given his history. So do you want to talk about that a bit? Sure. Well, first of all, I, I want to thank you for uh, for having me on. It's it's great to join you uh, for this. Uh, and, and I think you're right. You know, the, the the speech itself, calling Trump a fascist, is is not new. People have been doing it basically ever since he came down the golden elevator in in 2015. And and Biden did it a little differently, which is important. And and we can we can probably get into that a bit later. But I think it is absolutely relevant that that Biden is doing this because. Um, he's somebody who's not only talked about working with Republicans, he's not only somebody who has prioritized bipartisanship in very meaningful ways, he's, he's done it in more than just sort of the gloss of, of working together, of brotherhood, of unity. He's done it in a way that he's actually worked with Republicans across the aisle to get things done. Um, and not just that, but in, in ways that have cut against his own party's interests sometimes. He's been on the record, even during the 2016 campaign, or I'm sorry, the 2020 campaign, uh, as, as you know, praising his ability to work with segregationist senators in the 1970s, you know, these, these 
uh, old school Southern politicians who, you know, stood up against the Civil Rights Acts and the Voting Rights Act. Um, he's somebody who, for whom, you know, getting along with people with whom he might necessarily disagree with is, is sort of like breathing. Um, and so for him to declare Trump as beyond the pale, I think, is a sign uh, not only of how far he's evolved over the past, you know, 18 months, um, but also how, you know, salient the threat is that Trump poses to the constitutional order. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, like Biden, I mean, to give a sense of who he is, he was the only, you know, non-Republican um, to speak at Storm Thurmond's uh, funeral. Uh, and he gave the speech. It's a remarkable thing, you know, about how, uh, you know, he and Thurmond disagreed on some things, but he had a good heart and they were able to work together. I mean, that is, and and it's not just Thurmond. I mean, like the, the Biden in his, um, as you mentioned, in the 2020, you know, like he um, would speak about these uh, um, uh, old segregationists the way like a, a ba baseball fanatic would. Like, like not only did he know like Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth, but he know like these obscure segregationists <laughs> that everyone else has forgotten. And he, he would speak about them with great fondness. And so, um, uh, I mean, coming from Joe Biden, I, I think that is like very uh, significant. Um, uh, and uh, I, I mean, the, the fascism uh, debate in question, I, I mean, it gets entangled with all sorts of, you know, issues of like um, academic history. And there's a, you know, uh, a wide debate among scholars about this. And some people prefer a very narrow um, definition that really only includes people who are like, um, uh, basically, um, were fascists in the 20s and 30s and called themselves fascist. And, but, but it's like, you know, like other scholars who believe that the tendencies of fascism, that it, it was never a fixed, stable thing. It had um, a, a combination of things. And then one can see this combination forming or coming together in other places. Um, I, I think uh, uh, John Gans, um, who I've had on the podcast before, has been very good on this, that there's a, a variety of sort of proto-fascist or failed fascist movements in places mm -hmm. like France that, you know, like that are very close to um, uh, Trump. Um, so, so, I mean, I think it's an interesting kind of uh, like, uh, uh, I mean, there's an academic debate that can be had on both sides. I, I will point out that like, you know, some very careful scholars of fascism, like Robert Paxton, who were initially reluctant, who said, you know, like Trump's a very bad guy, very bad politics, but doesn't quite meet it, sort of changed their mind after January 6th. And um, the, the, uh, um, it's not enough to be just sort of like xenophobic right winger with authoritarian tendencies. I think like, you know, what's seen as a crucial part of fascism is the uh, violent rejection of democracy. And there's been that's been part of Trump's rhetoric all along. But I think, you know, with January 6th, like that was like so clear cut uh, that it, I think, it, you know, in the scholarly debate, I think a lot of people shifted at that point. Uh, so so do you want to like uh, talk? Uh, um, yeah, a, a little bit about like uh, what are the sort of uh, things that you think make it fair to say that, you know, Trump counts as a, a fascist? Well, I, I, you know, which I actually, I, I actually, I want to just, uh, th th and that's the other point. I mean, I think Biden's use of semi-fascist, which some people criticized, I think that's actually very pertinent. I mean, like it, it's a way of like noting that there's like components of fascism, but it's not all the way there yet. Right. And I, I think that's really the best way for, for Biden or anyone else to approach this. 
Um, you know, fascism, even beyond the academic definitions, it's obviously a very loaded emotional term. It's got a lot of resonance and weight in the Western uh, political context. So, it, you know, I understand people's reluctance to not use it, um, except in the most you know, dire of circumstances. I certainly thought the same thing for many years. I, I, I thought that there were other models, uh, historical models, uh, that better explain Trump's approach to politics and his movement. Um, without necessarily leaping to fascism. Uh, you know, one, obviously the reconstruction era, um, the sort of white oligarchies that sprung up throughout the South after that, where we saw single party rule in many states, um, where they still preserve the sort of hair and Volk democracy. Um, that, that, that seemed to be a, a much more salient sort of predecessor um, to Trump until recently. Uh, but I, I do think I do agree that January 6th changed things. And I think we see Biden's use of semi-fascism to be really brilliant here. Um, and I don't want to oversell. I don't think Biden went into this, you know, necessarily reading through academic texts and pouring over definitions. I think he just kind of called it like he saw it, um, which is really the best way to approach, you know, a certain level of fascism or semi-fascism. It, it is a it is a vibe. Um, it is it is not, you know, a 10 point plan for policy items. It is sort of a, a, a movement based on emotional and romantic notions um, that cannot necessarily be delineated as they cross national boundaries. That's why, you know, fascism in Italy was so much more, you know, imperial and Roman. In Germany, it was, you know, Teutonic and, and Volk based. In Britain with Mosley, it was aristocratic. Uh, it was, you know, deeply Catholic and, and integralist in, in Spain. I, I don't think we should be surprised that it manifests differently in the United States than it did necessarily in, in Italy or, or, or Spain or, or Germany. Um, but I think the most salient points are, are, like you said, the rejection of parliamentary democracy. Um, not necessarily the idea that the people should have some sane government, but and not necessarily just a constriction of who those people are. Um, but the idea that that Parliamentary politics, the idea of resolving things through legislative means, um, through the ordinary political processes, are insufficient to sort of the perceived threat. And we know from fascist countries and, and, and historically um, that that threat is often mercurially defined. Uh, you know, they, in, in the modern context for the American right, it's, it's immigrants, it's leftists, it's um, socialist takeovers, it, it's a variety of semi-real and purely imagined uh, sort of threats. Um, and it's about restoring the national sort of soul to a pre-existing form that, that may or may not have fully existed. Um, now, where the, this country deviated from the past, usually there's some sort of perceived enemy of, that undermines you know, the nation's social mores, its moral energy, it's, it's political and economic structures. Um, fascists see themselves as a cure to that, and they pitch that they need total or near total power to achieve that. Um, I, I think Trump is semi-fascist in the sense that I don't think he wakes up in the morning and says, I have to lead a national revival and, and overthrow the American government. Um, but I think he is semi-fascist in the sense that he believes these things and expresses them on some level um, and then channels it through his own personal desires to stay in power. Uh, and in doing so, he's attracted a lot of people to his movement that do genuinely believe in these things um, and want to see them brought about. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's right. And I think your use of the word vibe uh, captures something, which is that this is not like a sort of process. It's not like um, the sort of older ideologies of you know liberalism, 
socialism or conservatism, where you had people like who are very interested in definitions and, you know, like I got into big debates about uh, what a program or agenda is. Fascism is a more like a, a, a dynamic um, and uh, mm. the coalescing of forces uh, that come together in particular uh, circumstances. And that's why I think, I mean, my preferred term is sort of proto-fascist or, uh, but I think it would just, I guess the same as sort of semi-fascist. It's, it's a coming together and one sees, um, you know, components um, uh, which you, you've outlined that are very clearly, uh, you know, uh, uh, part of that fascist vibe um, that are forming. Now, the, Critics of uh, the use of the term fascism um, uh, often emphasize that like a big kind of component, uh, which one doesn't, which they would argue one doesn't see um, is a kind of radicalized mass movement. Uh, and in particular in Europe of the 1920s, uh, you had a lot of war veterans that had, you know, gone through this common experience of the hell of the trenches of the, you know, the hell of, uh, you know, four years of war and, you know, formed a, a very radical cadre um, uh, that was mobilized on a mass scale and integrated into political parties on a mass scale. And um, I think the historian Daniel uh, Bresner um, is one that really has emphasized this point that, you know, like they, he insists that that is essential and that one doesn't see anything like that. And, uh, you know, like uh, I think that the point about the mass movement is, uh, uh, has some validity, but I wouldn't say like there's nothing comparable. Like I think one sees in, you know, things like the Proud Boys, you know, like maybe like it's much less intense than the sort of street fighters of the 1920s and 30s that, you know, like really um, uh, overthrew the regimes in Germany and Italy. But I mean, it's still, you know, one has these sort of paramilitary groups. And I think what's interesting is that some of the people who are kind of, um, interested in, uh, you know, pushing this uh, mag uh, Republicans in a fascist direction, uh, you know, want to have more of that. And I think one sees this, like, I think uh, you might have seen this, that the Claremont Institute, you know, which is one of the big sort of think tanks that has aligned itself with um, Trumpism, uh, they're like trying to organize like sheriffs um, and to get them um, uh, have a program they call share fellowship, where they bring in sheriffs and they, you know, like give them ideological indoctrinations and have this kind of like idea of, you know, like sovereign sheriffs, you know, like that sh the sheriff is the true repository of the law. And that if you have a, an election um, dispute, you know, it shouldn't be judges or uh, elected officials, the sheriff is the final judge or is, is the arbiter of this. Um, so, I mean, I, so, you know, like once you get that, once you get people trying to organize, you know, like um, law enforcement and, uh, and I think some of Trump's, you know, pitches to the military and the police have a similar echo with it. Like, yeah, I, I think that answers the sort of, you know, uh, Daniel Bresner complaint that like, you know, you don't have a mobilized paramilitary. Right. And I, I think that's one of the instances where we see um, you know, fascism or fascism or semi-fascism adapting to local conditions. Um, you know, in, in Germany and Italy and Spain and other historical countries where these movements have arisen, the, the governments were a lot more centralized, top-down, where you could effectively wield national power through national institutions. And the United States is a lot more diffused than that. Um, so, you know, the reason that we see this reliance on sheriffs, on state legislatures, on, on other forms of government is, is much more functionalist in nature. It's because they know that in the constitutional order, 
or at least, you know, in one version of it, that is where power can be primarily exercised. Um, and it goes back to sort of a tendency in the American mind to prefer federal decentralized authority. Um, now they know that these nexuses of power can be used for more authoritarian means. So it doesn't necessarily mean that decentralized is democratic or liberal or, or something like that. Um, it simply is an alternative means for them to exercise control. Uh, and so, I mean, the constitutional sheriff's thing, we could spend an entire, an entire session on that and how troubling that is and sort of the historical predecessors for that. Um, uh, but I'm also glad you brought up the, 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 um, the sort of paramilitary wings. Uh, and I know the Proud Boys get a lot of attention, but when you look at some of them, like Patriot Front, which was just marching in Indianapolis this last weekend, I believe, um, when you look at uh, some of the border militias that sprung up in the 2000s, when uh, George W. Bush was sort of reorienting political conversations around immigration, um, a lot of these movements pre-existed Trump, and I think he was able to draw upon them. And so I think that is where um, some of the confusion arises, because they say, well, you know, Trump didn't create these things. Um, they aren't, they aren't part of some organic, wholly separate movement they created. And I think that requires confronting that these threads have always existed, um, on the right. They've always existed in the American body politic. Maybe they weren't as prominent as they are now. Maybe they weren't as influential as they are now. Um, but it requires us to sort of reckon with that pre-existing structure. Um, and I think for people who have been in politics for a long time, that is sort of difficult to accept. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc what's so special about hero Bread's soft fluffy and delicious breads buns and tortillas these ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar fewer calories and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health shop now at hero.co yeah, no, no, I, I, I think that's right. And actually, I think that's a way to thread back to something you had said earlier, which is that um, you had thought, um, and I'd also shared this opinion and written about it, that the sort of you know, model of reconstruction and the backlash to reconstruction um, and the sort of um, regional oligarchies um, in the South that rose up, you know, offered a sort of uh, more salient um, uh, parallel uh, to what Trump was doing, uh, but I mean, I mean, those are, I mean, that is the American model um, of. Uh, authoritarianism, the sort of provincial um, uh, 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 oligarchy, uh, 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 where sort of like local elites, you know, aligned with law enforcement, um, uh, you know, exercise power that, you know, like, none of us would regard as democratic. Uh, and it is interesting, I mean, like, in some ways, 
this is part of the longer story of the sort of southernization of America that, uh, you know, just as the, uh, with the civil rights movement, you had, you know, finally a successful reconstruction that brought democracy to the South, but then you also had this sort of counter push to um, not just undo the second reconstruction, but also bring that sort of uh, Southern model you know, like on a national scale. I mean, I think that's one way to see Trump. And there are absolute like long threads of continuity of sort of extremist anti-democratic movements in the United States, which um, um, maybe I have not been as prominent, but have always been there. And I think the relationship to the Republican party is maybe what's more interesting. You know, like earlier Republicans might have flirted with them or had them like, you know, made dog whistles or had them in the background. I think for Trump, for the first time, we see these like, you know, um, anti-democratic, for the first time in a long time, we see that these uh, um, anti-democratic movements have a voice in the national scale with a, a political party. Uh, and that seems to be the novelty. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, these, these sort of movements, uh, existed sort of as appendages. I, I, I'm trying to think of the right sort of visual framework to describe them. Um, but I get the sense that, you know, they operated sort of loosely in orbit around, around broader conservative politics, um, which, you know, while conservative did not necessarily equate to authoritarianism and, and uh, anti-democratic, you know, lowercase d democratic thought. Um, but I do think that, you know, one of the factors that, that makes it so troubling now is that the United States does have uh, legal structures and means that make it possible for these um, forces to, uh, you know, leverage power more effectively. And I think the the reason January 6th is so salient here is not just the use of political violence, although that is that is sort of the predominating um, takeaway there, um, but also the, the way they were able to try to exploit um, these sort of features in our constitutional order um, in an attempt to reassert themselves and to gain power. Um, it revolved around using a very small um, sort of super democratic uh, form, the Electoral College, um, to try to overturn a democratic election. It relied on using fake electors in uh, certain states to sort of challenge the legitimacy of that, using state legislatures to overturn it. Um, I, I do think it can be mapped onto this model, and I think that that should give us some concern when thinking about not only how Trump, who is, you know, a very sui generis personality in American politics, um, but how future people, the Ron DeSantis of the world, um, who is currently spending his free time, you know, in Florida, ousting school board officials and, uh, you know, local prosecutors who are themselves elected by the people to those offices, um, ousting them from power and installing new people who will sort of enforce his top-down will. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we, we should worry about the replication of this model at the state level and, and the federal level and um, the idea that this lives on beyond Trump. Yeah, no, no, I, absolutely. I, th I think that's a, like a very pertinent point. And it gets to, you know, the degree to which um, Trumpism has become the, uh, you know, um, the dominant force, although not the only, I think even now, it's still not the only force within the Republican Party, but it, it does seem dominant that if you look at, you know, um, according to polls for 2024, 
Trump himself is still the, the overwhelming favorite among Republican voters. And then after him is DeSantis, where, you know, who's like trying to be as much like Trump, uh, who's selling pitches. I think that he's like the the um, more responsible, sane version of Trump. Um, and so so that, that really, you know, once you have a Republican Party that's in that uh, position, then uh, it creates real problems. Uh, and it, I mean, I mean, it's so interesting that it's Biden that has come to recognize this because, you know, as we've mentioned before, his, his whole instinct is to work with Republicans, to work across the aisle. Um, and that's also the whole instinct of the American political establishment, like I think to this day, that there was this kind of hope that like the Biden presidency would be an Anshan regime restoration, that yeah. you know, he, Biden would get in and it would be all like, oh, this, the last four years were a bad dream, <laughs> you know, and then one would get back to the days of, you know, um, John McCain shaking hands with Barack Obama and, and Biden's there in the, in the background. And, you know, that, that clearly has not happened. And Biden recognizes, although has made real efforts at bipartisanship and has even had bipartisan success, you know, like he himself recognizes that that's not going to happen. Um, and I think one of the consequences, but there's still a, a desire in the political establishment for that. And also a lot of institutions are geared towards that. The whole mainstream media in America is geared towards a political model of a less polarized uh, nation. And, you know, like, uh, um, and one sees that the, the sort of backlash that Biden is getting, not just for, you know, the semi-fascist comment, which is incendiary, but for the speech he gave in Philadelphia, which was a little bit more measured, you know, there's been a huge kind of backlash. The Washington Post did an editorial saying, well, you know, like we share Biden's concerns with about uh, uh, Trumpism, but Biden's speech was partisan and politicized and it was more big D democratic than small D democratic. And there's, there's been a lot of that, especially in you know, things like CNN and in some of the uh, coverage in the uh, uh, New York Times, uh, people like, you know, objecting to like, you know, is he being, is Biden being too inflammatory uh, and too partisan? Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like where some yeah, of Yeah, it's, it's sort of just, just really funny to hear after living through four years of Donald Trump where nobody ever gave Trump shit for um, I apologize for the profanity, but nobody ever gave him any any hassles for, you know, singling out Democrats in speeches or blurring the lines between sort of the official ceremonial roles of the head of state and, you know, his political responsibilities as head of government and leader of the party. Um, I, I think it speaks to a broader sense that American politics in some, some elite circles, that American politics is supposed to be non-political and non-partisan. Um, which is to say that, that everybody is supposed to sort of get along at the end of the day and resolve their differences amicably and, you know, come to sort of some sort of kumbaya moment about how to resolve the, how to resolve the major issues of the day. Um, I, 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 you know, I think it's fine to hope that, you know, everybody gets along and, and people agree on everything, but that's just not how politics works. Um, Partisanship is essential to democracy. People have to be able to choose between different sides that can distinguish themselves. Politics is, is just how things run in, in the world. You know, it's how people um, shape their lives and their societies to best order the distribution of power and goods. Um, the idea that a president can give a speech that is apolitical is, is nonsense. Um, and the idea that a president should give a speech that is nonpartisan is, is sort of shaky. 
Um, you know, obviously we don't want presidents, you know, giving, you know, speeches at foreign heads of states funerals that are just recitations of campaign talking points. There should be some separation. Um, but the idea that, that Biden is the leader of the Democratic Party cannot go out and say, hey, the Republican Party in large part is turning pretty anti-democratic and that seems pretty bad. Uh, that, that, that's just ridiculous on its face. And I think it speaks to the model of, of sort of uh, mainstream media collaboration and cooperation with, with the Republican Party um, as a necessity of its coverage um, that sort of weakens its authority here. Um, there are certainly ways to cover the Republican Party without necessarily doing this. Um, and, and I would hope that, you know, more uh, people in these these offices can recognize that. Um, but I think we've seen that, you know, if Biden can go there, then then there's no reason that that other people can either. Um, and I think I think one, one, one other thing I want to add about that is that Biden, when he was talking, he was very specific to say MAGA Republicans when he said the semi-fascism comment. Even still, he is trying to sort of carve off and quarantine Trump and Trumpism from the rest of the Republican Party. Um, he is—he still sees himself as being able to work with Mitch McConnell, um, as being able to work with his old buddies in the Senate Republican Caucus. Um, he still sees himself as as in that bipartisan tradition. Um, I, I don't know whether that will be efficacious in the long run. I don't know whether that hold up. I mean, I, I would give that more credence if, if Mitch McConnell had voted to convict Trump after January 6th. Um, but you have to recognize that, you know, he is making a sort of olive branch argument here, saying that there is a choice. You can either be like Trump and plot the downfall of the American Republic, or you can uh, be a normal pre-Trump conservative, um, whatever that may be. Uh, I think that sort of olive branch gets overlooked here because everybody um, is so focused on the idea that Biden is committing some great sin by, you know, calling an apple an apple. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. And I think that the fact that people ignore, I mean, that was a big part of the speech, his insistence that, you know, like he's not talking about, all, he actually specifically said he's not even talking about most Republicans, which I think, you know, one can actually on a factual basis quibble with. You know, like I, I think you know, there's an argument for me that most Republicans are already there, and that's a real problem. But I mean, Biden in uh, did have a conciliatory aspect of the speech um, that was very important, and the, the fact that it's ignored, um, I mean, it really speaks to uh, I don't know. I mean, just that even the Joe Biden, you know. Uh, making these observations too much. And, and I, I think it's a real problem that's going to be going forward, that there's a way in which I think parts of the media, and one already sees it in sort of like CNN and the New York Times in their coverage, really want to go back to kind of like the both sidism, the, the sort of fall objectivity of the media as an arbitrator and ignoring the really salient differences between the two parties uh, on this issue of democracy. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's where the media is kind of like heading. Um, and I think it's gonna present real problems in their ability to accurately cover, you know, what is actually happening. And uh, I mean, I, to me, that's a, that's a real worry, like going forward. I think, I think that they've kind of internalized the normalized Trumpism and think that that's just the way it is. And we have to, you know, um, uh, uh, still uh, uh, pretend, pretend that the two parties are the same. And I think the key word to use there is normalization. Um, 
for a lot of, of, of these established news outlets, um, normalcy is the goal. Um, they, they, they see derivations from that as newsworthy and they see normalcy as, as sort of placid and safe and benign. Um, I, I can go on about, you know, what that means when they cover the left, but, but more specifically for the right, um, there is a sense to normalize here in the sense that now, because Trump has taken over a significant portion of the Republican party, um, he is now seen as normal. And so that requires treating him with the trappings of normalcy. Uh, that pre-existed him. Uh, you know, it's always been so funny because we've seen CNN, the New York Times, these outlets, they have had genuinely amazing reporting on how Trump has operated. Uh, they've had great reporting on how, you know, the various things behind the scenes have unfolded. And that's always been bracketed by, uh, in some cases against the reporter's will, in some cases not, an institutional mindset of, of making sure that they are seen as, as equanimous, are um, as, as fair-handed as even when the coverage requirements itself require them to uh, call out one side more than the other. And I think that is something that, unfortunately, although we've made some progress, I mean, you know, after January 6th, it was pretty clear in elite media circles that Trump was a clear and present threat, that he had, you know, orchestrated an attempt to murder Congress and the vice president. Um, that he had, you know, tried to overthrow the Republic. I, I think we've moved back away from that, unfortunately, um, because the inclination among these, these outlets is to play it safe, is to prioritize a sense of normalcy um, rather than, you know, be seen as embridging their, uh, their perceived neutrality. Um, I, I would prefer that they get away with that, you know, from that, um, that they, they, they abandon that, but I have, I have little hope that I'll be able to persuade the editorial board of, uh, you know, the post or the times or CNN to do so. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that, and that's probably a good place to end this. I mean, like, I think the sort of narrative that we're, we're talking about is that there was a moment of clarity in um, the media and in elite circles after January 6th, that, you know, something had gone wrong, uh, you know, this is something that was a, a, a terrible trans transgression and breach um, of what America should be. And, but that, you know, over time, you know, and, and that's the thing, like time heals all wounds, right? Like you, <laughs> over time, there's a, uh, uh, there's a, been a reversion to the mean, a return to kind of, you know, like the the institutional um, structures uh, and ways of the institutional mentalities uh, that really dominate these things. Um, and I, I think Biden's one way to think about Biden's um, semi-fascist comment and also his uh, speech is that he's trying to, you know, um, reverse the tri uh, tide on that and to remind us that, you know, like uh, this is not normal. Uh, but he's in some ways he's really going against, the, you know, the currents of establishment opinion uh and you know like you know i, I say to someone who's like often a critic of biden not a fan uh but you know like it's, it's really good and brave and important that he, he's doing this um uh, and i think i think your uh, uh column in the uh, new republic which i'll link to uh really brings that out uh so so i want to thank you for uh, uh, uh talking about all this well thanks so much for having me it was great and i hope to do it again sometime